The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. You can be seated. I hope that you are ready to come and receive the blessing of uh, the Word of God to us today uh, from Psalm 89. Children can be dismissed for Children's Church, and if you would locate Psalm 89, I would uh, really appreciate it. Um, uh, Jonathan, could you turn that clock, please, just so I can see it a little bit better, um, that I would... I would appreciate it. And now, as preachers often say, I can no longer have to pay attention to it. Um, there it is. Um, I'm going to read uh, just a couple of verses from Psalm 89. Uh, we're actually going to deal with the first big part of this psalm. And uh, next week, we'll be dealing uh, with the second part of it. But just verses 20 uh, to 24. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy will not outwit him, the wicked will not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. The word of the Lord. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 89 is a very big psalm, uh, 52 verses, and it has one beautiful theme, and that theme is the steadfast love of the Lord. Uh, This theme is to be on the lips of God's people regardless of the situations and the circumstances that they may face because it is only as we learn to rejoice in the steadfast love of the Lord that we will find our hope to be fully in Him. Let me say that again. It will only be as we learn to rejoice in the steadfast love of the Lord that we will find our hope to be fully in Him. And so the first four verses of this psalm um, introduces us to its theme of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. There is a conversation that unfolds. The psalmist says one thing and then he uh, informs us as to what God is saying or has said about what he is saying. You know, uh, in many ways, uh, it seems like an eternity since March of 2020 when um, we entered into COVID world. It just seems like such a long time ago, although it really hasn't been that long ago. And as we have watched the shifting sands of uncertainty take over the idea of American invincibility, fear seems to still be the overriding emotion. Fear. The fear of COVID. Now, uh, for many, the fear of COVID's response. The overreach 
of government and all of the fear that uh, enters into our lives as we think about the overreach of government. Uh, We, of course, have economic fear. We have people who are in fear of their own economics uh, that either have already left their job, might lose their job uh, if they don't do what their employer asked them to do. Of course, there is international fear, a fear of war that continues to haunt us. There is a fear of foreign power, uh, not so much invading forces and planes and ships and troops, but getting into uh, secure areas through technology, the uh, issue of foreign powers intervening in our elections or foreign powers that are causing disruption in uh, society. This idea of fear appears to be the new normal for American culture at this moment. And if fear is the new normal, then the church had better buckle up and strap in. Because if history has taught us one thing in American culture, it is this. The church is usually only a short step behind the world. The church in the United States, at least mostly in my lifetime, has not been salt and light. It has been more like a little child panting after the kids running ahead because they want to catch up. And the church has responded over the years of my life as not standing against but desires to be part of. And not only in all of the expressions that we might think about, but also in the emotional or existential ways that the world, and especially our nation, might respond. But as I read these first four verses of Psalm 89, I have to ask, what if... What would happen if we confess our fears to God instead of giving a response like the world would give? What if we confessed our fears to God and we gave a response like Psalm 89 gives? What if we return to singing praise to God's love and faithfulness Instead of singing the tired songs of fear and worry or anger, or in many cases in the church of the United States, of arrogance. What if as part of our response to all of the things that are swirling around us, we instead return to praise the God who is actually in charge of all of it, Excuse me, I have to cough, and I don't know where that... Oh, there it is. I don't want to cough in the microphone. Excuse me. So here's the point. As we remain in the truth of who God is, the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, what we will find is that praise can become a starting point for hope. Praise can become a starting point for hope. The world is in the grip of fear because it has lost its hope. It has lost its hope because it no longer has any room for God, 
who is to be praised for his steadfast love and faithfulness. And again, I would say that the church is also in the grip of fear because it too has in many ways lost its ability to praise God, even though throughout all of my lifetime, I heard good Christians say, rejoice in tribulation. Count it all joy when you fall into tribulation. And what I have seen, both in our congregations, as well as listening to other pastors, and certainly in the response of the Church of America, is anything but joy in the face of tribulation. Last week, I pointed out rather quickly that there is a conversation going on in these first four verses. You have the psalmist singing and talking to God in verses 1 and 2. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. The psalmist said, I said, I will, a steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. This is the point of praise that brings great hope to the heart and the life and the mind of the psalmist. And then he writes God's response. You have said, God, uh, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and your throne for all generations. And this is a wonderful way to approach praise. Here's what we're saying. And what we're saying is rooted in and based upon what we know that God has already said. And when we approach praise that way in a vertical relationship, then we can look at the horizontal issues and be reminded that our response to God is a point of hope because we find our hope in the God who has this strong I have and I will. This is what the psalmist said, verses 1 and 2, but notice what God said. God says, I have made. I have sworn, I will establish your offspring forever. It is that strong emphasis of the I haves and the I wills that show us God's steadfast love and faithfulness are not just points of praise, but points of hope because God has taken action. On one hand, God tells the psalmist, look back, see what I've done. I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. Take a look at that. Understand, remember what I've done. But then he tells the psalmist to look ahead and see how far reaching is this covenant that I've made. Look at it. I will establish your offspring forever. I will build your throne for all generations. Take a moment and reflect on this. That's what the little grammatical note tells us to do there in the margin of your Bible when it says Selah. It says stop and think about this. Stop and ponder what is taking place here early in this psalm and ask yourself some questions. Why are you afraid? You afraid of death? If you are, maybe you haven't grappled yet with what does it mean for a Christian to die? 
Or if you're afraid of death, maybe it's because you're not a Christian at all. Maybe a churchgoer. You may be a Bible carrier. You may be a hymn singer. But those aren't the things that save us. What are we afraid of? Maybe you're angry. Why are you angry? What is the source of your anger? God hasn't shown up the way you wished he would. God hasn't done the things you asked him to do. Why are we arrogant? Why do we sound like, you know, we have the corner on every truth? It's important to remember to ask ourselves some questions. And as we ask ourselves these questions to develop responses that flow out of both praise and then hope of what God is doing. If you are afraid, confess your fear to God and to develop a heart of praise as a response to your fear. If you're angry, recall to mind that your anger does not achieve God's righteousness. So, so anger is not a Christian response. So how do you plan on letting go of your anger? How do you plan on getting rid of your anger? Let praise about who this God is and what this God has done and what this God is doing be a point at which hope then begins. So here's the question we have to grapple with. Will we as Christians, in a time of uncertainty, find our certitude in God and as we find our certitude in God, will we praise Him for His steadfast love and for His faithfulness? Will we be that kind of a Christian who from our lips pours forth the singing of the praises of God for His steadfast love and for His faithfulness? Well, this sets up then the second part of this text. And that's a big section taking us from verse number 5 to verse number 18. And as we start verse number 5, we find that the psalmist begins to raise his voice and begins again to sing the praises of God. And this praise leads him then to ask some questions. So verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. And then he asks some rhetorical questions for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? And then he, he, uh, he gives uh, answers to his questions. Who's to be compared to the Lord? Who's mighty like the Lord? Verses 9 through 14. Well, no one. Because who else rules the raging of the sea? When its waves rise, oh God, you still them. Who else would have crushed Rahab like a carcass and scattered your enemies with your mighty arm? Who else does the heavens belong to and the earth belong to, the world and all that is in them? Because you, O oh God, founded them. The north, the south, you created them. Tabor, Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. You you see, it's one thing for us to just, you know, kind of uh, generically praise the Lord. It's another thing for us to lift up our voices. And as we lift up our voice in praise, we ask questions. And then we let the scriptures remind us of the answer to those questions. We can gain encouragement as we look at the natural world around us. We look into the sky or we look out onto the land and we see what God has done. And remember that the answer is that there's no one to be compared to the Lord. No one is as mighty as the Lord. And this becomes a point of praise and then a point of hope because it is God who holds all things together. And the God who holds all things together is surrounded by love and faithfulness and his, his throne has a foundation of righteousness and justice. This is an incredible thing that the psalmist does for us. Take your anxious heart. Take the foreboding that you often feel. And place it into God's throne of righteousness and justice. The place where faithfulness surrounds Him. Drag yourself off of all of these influences that cloud your mind and your judgment and steal your joy and try to convince you that in the end it's really up to you. You actually do have something to fear. You do have something to be angry about. And draw yourself back into the God whose very foundation, His throne's foundation is righteousness and justice. You see, on this long road of obedience, we do have markers to follow. One marker is the natural world over which God rules. But that marker is intended to lead us to the much larger thing that God is doing for His world and for those who live in His world. This is why then, uh, in verse number 15, the psalmist says, Blessed are the people who know what? The festal shout. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of Your face. We are such blessed people. Not because our circumstances always work out the way we wish they would. Not because God snaps his finger, takes away all of our pain and suffering and anguish. We are a blessed people because we know the festal shout. We know what it means to shout out. We we are walking in the light of the blessing of God's face. The psalmist reminds us that the people who know the festal shout who walk in the face of God are indeed blessed. And the reason we are blessed is because we know that God's power not only holds this world together, but it also overcomes the power that wants to tear it apart. This is a very important thing that the psalmist does. He doesn't just say, look at the world, God's holding it together. He then says, 
You are blessed because God is able to keep away the powers that want to tear the world apart. And as we reflect on this, this power of God, the steadfast love of the Lord, the God whose foundations are foundations of justice and righteousness, we remember that God is able to undo all of the power of the wicked. And this should instill confidence in us. It should instill confidence and it should drive out sinful responses as they begin to worm their way into our lives. It should, it should give us in our taste buds a desire to hear more of what God is saying than what uh, you know, your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or your social media or talk radio or news radio or the newspaper or your neighbor or whoever it is is saying. They should not be the controlling agent of your mind. If it is, you'll stop giving the festal shout and you'll curl up in your fear or you'll rage in your anger. And both responses seem rather arrogant. You know, in my fundamentalist upbringing, which, you know, I still have great appreciation for, um, I was taught to ask this question. What would a non-Christian think if they saw you and then, you know, X, go into a movie theater or stay home from church or grow your hair long uh, or smoke or drink or uh, some other, you know, vice, let's say? What would they think if they saw you doing that? And fundamentalism had a way then of kind of controlling the externals on the basis of, well, what would non-Christians think? You know, you're keeping them from being a Christian if they see you do X, whatever, whatever it might be. Well, I, I, I'm going to turn that question around for us and ask a different question. What do you think non-Christians are thinking when they listen to you? When they hear your fear? When they hear your anger, when they hear your arrogance, or do non-Christians hear coming out of your mouth a confident yet humble discipleship that rightfully knows the festal shout that is giving praise to God, that is, that is anchored with confidence into God who's very foundations of the throne are righteousness and justice. Do, do people actually know that we are the blessed ones because of what they hear come out of our mouth in response to all of the things that swirl around us? May God give us the desire to once again want the festal shout to be heard. In our private lives, our personal devotion, and our families, and our church, and of course in our community. And as we remind one another that God will not be outwitted by his enemies, we can make that a point of praise, which then leads us to great hope that our God is able to do all things well for us, his people.
Which then takes us to the third part of the text that we're going to work on today. And that is this hope that is grounded in a once and for all reality. You see, God has chosen to reveal His goodness through entering into a covenant with His people. He chose David to leave the fields and come and be anointed as Israel's king. God swore an oath to David that his offspring would be established forever, that his throne would be built up for all generations. And the way that the psalmist describes this and the language that the psalmist uses is to contrast uh, between God and David uh, what uh, actually happened in the rule and the reign of David. Now, David was a mighty warrior. We know that David was a mighty warrior, right? He killed his uh, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. But what the psalmist wants us to know is that anything that David did was because of what God had done through David. And we need to make this a point of remembrance. And we need to remain in this truth. You see, as we've retrieved truth, as we've been reproved by truth, we need to remain in truth. So look at verse number 19 again. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. Did you notice? It's God who is taking the action. I have, I have, I have. And then at the end of 20, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. And then the purpose is worked out in verse 21. So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. So God's purpose is worked out in David, not through David's power, but through David's obedience to what God was doing. The I have, the I have, the I have, the I have, so that my hand, God says, will be established. So that the enemy will not outwit him. So that the wicked will not humble him. That God continues to take the action. I will crush his foes and strike down those who hate him. And this is a point, again, of praise. The recounting of God's power working on David's behalf is so very encouraging. And the response then of David is encouraging as well in verse 26 that David would cry out to God, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. You see how praise brings us to hope and as God takes action, we go back to praising God for who he is. Singing of the mercies of the Lord forever, making known his faithfulness to all generations, knowing that God's very foundations are righteousness and justice and we can shout out again to God you God are my father you God are the rock of my salvation but you know there was one enemy that David did not defeat and that was the enemy of death like all humanity David succumbs to death the one that killed his tens of thousands could not say no to death. And so we might then you know, say, well, how does David's throne endure forever? Is it just kind of an abstraction? 
It's kind of an existential thought. Is it just a point kind of, you know, of religiosity? No, it actually endures forever because of the son who sits on David's throne. The one who gave himself to death, but death did not defeat because he was raised from the dead because he had given full obedience to all of his father's will. The son of David, the one who is greater than David, is called into action. And this is the good news that we continue to proclaim, that the son of David, Jesus Christ, is the king that we so desperately need. He is the fulfillment of the promise of verse 29, when God says, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens, the church responds and says, that offspring is seated today, enthroned in heaven. He rules and reigns over all things. So what do we have to be afraid of? If our death is wrapped up in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what do we have to be afraid of? Sins are forgiven. Guarantees have been made. Promises have been realized. Why are you angry if you're angry? God, God is not going to let his enemies outwit him. There isn't some grand scheme that you know intelligent human beings are ever going to come up with that are going to outmaneuver God. It simply isn't going to happen. And so we are drawn back into then the victory that Jesus wins for us by giving himself to death and then through his resurrection. But the psalmist doesn't end there. The psalmist then says something else is very important here to remember. Verse 30. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. That's why Robert read, that's why Robert read um, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall worship him. That's why I had Robert read uh, James 1. It was of God's will that we were brought forth by the word of truth. And if every good thing is flowing down from above, it flows down from the Father of lights with whom is no variation or shifting shadow. But we must walk in that truth. You see, all the authors are essentially saying the same thing. From Moses, it's God who brought Egypt out of slavery. Israel didn't dig their own cisterns. Israel didn't plant their own olive trees. God did it for them. James, how were you brought forth to God? God did it through the word of his truth. And this is why the psalmist can call us to a life of praise and hope because he knows what God did for David. And we can join him in that praise and hope because we know what God is doing through his son Jesus who sits on the throne of David. And just as God did not lie to Moses, and God did not lie to David, and God did not lie to the psalmist, God will not lie to us. 
And so we can sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. We can, with our mouths, make known his faithfulness, a faithfulness that surrounds his throne. And when we return to that point of praise, and we are instilled with gospel confidence, then we can move out with hope. Hope in a world that has lost its way. Last week, I um, invited you to do something. And we'll invite you again this week. Because the apostolic preaching that we must retrieve and be reproved by and remain in also requires a response of apostolic pastoring. And so I want to offer myself again to you as a congregation. To sit down with you. And whatever you're struggling with. However you have lost your way from this point of praise and hope. And to help you move back there. We might need to spend some time together reading God's word. Listening. Asking the hard questions. Finding once again this point of praise so that we can have hope. It begins by you coming to this table. But before you come, remembering the warning to examine yourself. To examine yourself. And then, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But I also want to remind you of the invitation for those who are not Christians. For those who are not Christians, one of the best ways to understand that you're not a Christian, and to become a Christian actually, is to sit down and let the Word of God read you as you read it. Now I would offer myself again to any who want to sit with me and read the Bible together, to examine your heart before the Word of God and Allow me as your pastor to care for your soul in these times of great challenge and difficulty. You see, this invitation can bring great rejoicing to us because as I extend this invitation, I am actually extending it because Jesus is extending it to us. He is still knocking at the door. And he's still saying, open the door. Let me come in and let's eat together. And may God give us grace then to respond to Jesus. And may God give us the wherewithal to not just sit idly by and let it all go on, but that we might become the people of Christ to give ourselves fully to him. Father, we thank you that uh, this word spoken today from your word has not gone empty. It is not going out empty. You are causing it to do something, God, and I give you praise that you are causing it to do something. Father, we have spent uh, the better part of a month and a half now talking about continuous spiritual renewal. And it's been my prayer, O oh God, that you would nourish us today with good things that would strengthen us for renewal. And now, Spirit of God, I leave this in your 
capable hands, in your divinely empowered presence, that you would uh, move in the lives of people. I'll leave us to some time of quietness as we prepare ourselves to celebrate together the table of our Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.